Well, here we are again. And I like to say God works in mysterious ways. I'm pretty sure you've all kind of heard that old saying over the years. But really, it's true. Oftentimes, things that we do not expect, things out of the ordinary take place. And during those times of, well, may not necessarily be times of trial, but of you're not sure what's going on, you know still deep down, Lord has his hand on it. This isn't happening because Lord suddenly turned his back on you and, ooh, what happened? I'm surprised. That isn't how God works. And we cling to a promise. Uh, One promise a lot of us look to in hard times in Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, these times, as we all know, especially the unpleasant times, are there. They're there for a reason, to test our faith. If our faith is never tested, then we never become stronger. We never become closer to the Lord. And that's our ultimate goal as believers. But at the same time, we need to keep in, in mind as well that God did indeed place us there. There is a reason beyond that mere testing of our faith. We're there because God wants us at that spot at that point in time. And... At such times, there is another promise from a, probably a less known passage, but a powerful promise nonetheless. And it's found in Isaiah uh, chapter 43, verses 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. But we are going to be referring back to it quite a bit tonight. Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. We are the Lord's. And those of us who have given our lives totally over to His will and His service, this becomes a promise, a privilege that we are going to be exactly where He wants us to be while we're in His will, and He is going to take care of us every step of the way, despite what the conditions may be. Now, if we think about these verses of rivers overflowing us or walking through the flames, unless you're a fireman, this is really not normal activities in everyday life. Okay, But they really speak of all those trials that we were going to face. Some severe, some not so, some almost life-threatening. That put our faith to the test. But yet that promise assures us that we're going to be brought through safely. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that addresses this very thing. God placing his servants in a very dangerous situation to show non-believers that he does take care of his own. And to remind puny man who's really in charge of the universe. So right now, turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 3, and we'll be starting in verse 1. Now while you're turning to Daniel 3, let me give you a little bit of background information on this story. You're probably all familiar with it. It's told all the time in Sunday school. The story of the fiery furnace. Okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, the event that we are talking about tonight, this event, happened about, oh, 120 years after Isaiah penned that verse we had just previously read. At this point in time, when Isaiah wrote those words, Judah had been in a downward moral spiral. Okay? There was this brief respite during the reign of good King Hezekiah, but as soon as Hezekiah died, it just really fell apart. And finally, God had enough. He had given them warning and warning and warning, and now judgment came in the form of a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar II, the king of Babylon, and arguably one of the most ruthless, shrewd, and yet successful military leaders in the ancient world. Now, he began a series of invasions on Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. He besieged Judah three times between 605 B.C. and 587 B.C., and finally ended up destroying Jerusalem and the temple at the end of that time. Now, during each of these invasions, Nebuchadnezzar would take away many of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Generally, what he went after, though, were the nobility and the skilled workers. Nebuchadnezzar, for all his ruthlessness, was really a very wise man in terms of running a kingdom. 
He knew that if you wanted to prevent rebellion, you took the best of the population and you actually incorporated them into your government. So they wouldn't want to rebel because they're still pretty much in charge. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar was over them, but they still had a lot of power. And he wanted to use all those gifts and talents to make his empire grow even stronger. Now, among the first set of captives, we find four young men. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, scripture really doesn't tell us much about these four, four young men. Other than they had been part of the nobility of Judah, uh, we can deduce that they were probably teenagers, possibly as young as 13 years old, and definitely we can come to the conclusion that they were brought up in a God-fearing family. Now, during in chapter 1 of Daniel, we find Nebuchadnezzar wanted to train up a whole group of these captives, including the four we just mentioned, in order to make them a part of the government, a sort of University of Babylon, if you will, in order to totally indoctrinate these young men, to strip them completely of their Jewish identity, he started by changing their names. Daniel, which meant in Hebrew, God is my judge, was renamed Belteshazzar, which means Bel, protect his life. Bel being one of the gods in the Babylonian pantheon. Hananiah, the Lord shows grace, became Shadrach, meaning Aku commands, Aku being the Babylonian moon god. Mishael, who is what God is, he was renamed Meshach, who is what Aku is. And Azariah, the Lord helps, became known as Abednego, servant of Nago or Nabu, who was the Babylonian god of wisdom and actually a personal favorite of Nebuchadnezzar himself, which we will look at later. Yet despite this change in name, these four young men were determined not to buckle into the influences of the pagan culture around them. They were determined to remain faithful to the Lord. And this wasn't an easy position for 13-year-old captives. Again, chapter 1 kind of gives us the story, how they respectfully refused the king's finest food so as not to defile themselves in the terms of the Jewish dietary laws. And it shows also how the Lord blessed them by placing them actually at the top of their class. It's interesting reading when you have time. Now note that even though they had to learn all the pagan literature and all the religion of the Chaldeans, they still remained faithful to God and he blessed them for it by placing them all in very important positions in the Babylonian government. So now this brings us to chapter 3, verse 1. So read along with me as we go through here. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall bow down and worship the gold image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Well, interesting little situation here. Well, as we have heard, Nebuchadnezzar meant what he said. I mentioned earlier on that he was very ruthless. And as a result, everyone knew that if they didn't bow before him, guess what? You're going to go in that fiery furnace. However, what we find is this is really another political move on Nebuchadnezzar's part. Now, he was consolidating power all throughout his vast empire. And he had many different representatives, not just of the Chaldeans, which was the, basically the ruling group, but all the other conquered peoples that he had brought in and was trying to put in charge. So he was playing his religious card, essentially, to consolidate power. 
he basically said, you are all going to acknowledge my God, and probably this was Nabu, because Nebuchadnezzar was actually named after this God. His name, Nebuchadnezzar, meant Nabu, protect my son. He basically was saying, you are going to dedicate yourself to my God, and that's the end of it. You're all mine, you're all Babylonian, and let's go on and conduct the business of government. And we see also a nice picture of the bureaucracy of the Babylonian Empire in this passage. The satraps were basically the regional governors. They were right under the king. They were responsible for large sections of the empire. The administrators were the next level down. Now, other translations will render this as prefects, which kind of indicates these were the military commanders. Then, of course, you had the provincial governors, the governors, much like governors of the states in the United States. You had the counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rest. These were just the lower levels from government. Nebuchadnezzar made sure that everything in that structure from top to bottom was involved. No one was forgotten. And the alternative, as we mentioned, to this obedience was quite clear. Probably in plain view nearby was this huge blast furnace, which was normally used for smelting metals, but it was big enough that you could use it as an instrument of execution. Now, I don't know how much you know about these things, but it was fueled by wood, coal, or charcoal. And the temperature was adjustable. Basically, hooked onto the outside was a large billows. And if you wanted to heat it up, you basically started pumping air through this billows, and it would get hotter and hotter on the inside, hot enough to melt most metals. Give you a number? Well, between two and 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It was hot. It was a very impressive sight, and definitely stated, no, you don't want to go in there. Now, this gathering was more than just a political assembly, though it was that as well. This was a religious service, complete with music to furnish the proper setting for worship. Now, because they were the king's musician, you can guarantee that these guys were the best in the empire, and probably even special worship music written just for this occasion. Nebuchadnezzar, again, he knew that he could use instrumental music because it could stir the people's emotions and could make it easy for them, for him to manipulate them and win their submission and obedience. And we've seen this all throughout history, how music and song have played important roles in strengthening nationalism, motivating conquest, and inspiring people to act in ways that may not normally have acted before. Music has the power so to grip human thoughts and emotions so much so that people can be transformed fairly easily from free agents to puppets. Music can be a wonderful tool as well. And it's a treasure from the Lord. Think about our own worship tonight. How beautiful that was to worship our Lord and to enter into his presence and how we could feel the spirit pouring upon us. Keep in mind that whatever the Lord has created, Satan has been able to pervert as well. And Satan took that very same type of worship music to direct the worship instead of to the Lord, to some idol, and even today to the performers, and even to Satan himself. So now the stage is set. Let's now pick it up in verse 7. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right, well, as far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned, hey, this is going good. But there was a problem. Look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Well, once again, and we would see it in chapter 1, once again, these three faithful servants of the Lord are being stood out for their faithfulness to him. Actually, kind of a nice place to be. 
Now, here's a question some people have asked. Well, if everyone was supposed to be bowing, how did anyone see the fact that these three guys weren't? Well, chances are that the king had already extracted an oath of loyalty from some of his top advisors, who happened to be Chaldeans, and these guys were tasked with with making sure that everyone was bowing. But we also kind of get an impression there was a little bit of jealousy there that these three Jewish kids, and at the time they were appointed, they were definitely kids, were placed in so high a government position above even the native Chaldeans. Now, where this came from was in chapter 2. In chapter 2 of Daniel, Daniel had interpreted a dream for the king, and as part of his reward, he asked that his three friends be placed in positions of authority. So, as Daniel and his three friends had been at the top of their class, Nebuchadnezzar probably felt it was a wise move. This was not just a political, empty political favor that was being uh, granted, nor was it a whim. Nebuchadnezzar thought very much of making sure his government worked efficiently, and to him it was a good idea. And I am sure there were a lot of grumbling about these Jews, these, these members of this conquered race. They were promoted up ahead of native Chaldeans, the master race. You get that sensation that it's there. Well, anyway, we see that story. We, we've heard it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, as we have seen, is not known for his mercy when people crossed him. That's why he destroyed Jerusalem in the first place, because their kings kept on rebelling against him. So the next verse, verse three, 13, bears this reputation out. The Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Well, this sounds pretty cruel, but let's give a little credit. The king actually was being very generous toward these guys in giving them a second chance. Normally, you would disobey Nebuchadnezzar. You were dead. End of discussion. But he obviously had a lot of respect for these three fellows. And granted, he was quite upset that they did not take his orders seriously, but he seemed to be giving them the benefit of the doubt. He thought, maybe you misunderstood the order. Okay? Or maybe you were falsely accused. He may have been aware of the jealousy and rivalry within his advisors. Perhaps he thought they had to prepare their minds for worship. And uh, thus, his rather sarcastic remark, now if you are ready, okay, almost like, okay, that was a practice. Now if you're ready, let's get on with the business. But whatever the reason, they were still expected to follow the order, and he made it clear. And just in case they had any doubts that perhaps they would escape punishment, he even threw a jab at God. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Clearly, he has forgotten what he said about God back in chapter 2. After Daniel had made it clear that it was the God of Israel who interpreted the king's dream. Daniel 2.47 states, The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, God, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. How soon we forget. Well, what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what was their response? Sorry, we misunderstood. We'll go ahead with it. No. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. 
Now, at first it means may seem like they're being a little starky by calling him by his first name instead of like the other Chaldeans that had said, O king, live forever. Well, no, they're not being snarky. That was their privilege. They worked directly with the king, and they had that privilege to address him directly by his first name. Think of this this display of faith. They knew he meant business. They knew. They saw it. They saw that thing sitting over there flaming away. They probably, from where they stood, could feel the heat of it coming toward them. We have no need to answer you in this matter. It's almost as if they're saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you know what happened when you had that dream. God's going to defend us. They knew that God had them in his hand. But they were the God's servants long before they were the king's servants. And God's orders trumped the king's orders. They didn't have to defend themselves. The Lord would take up their defense. And the kind of the cool thing is, they did not take it for granted that God was going to save them. Notice what they said. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from, your, from the fire, burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we, will not, we do not serve your gods. In essence, they're saying, yeah, he's able to do it. But no matter what happens, he's delivering us from your hand. You can't hurt us once we're dead. But it doesn't really matter. We're not budging. We're here. We're faithful to our God. Go ahead and do your worst. God has preserved us this far. He's going to continue to do so. But if he wants to take us home, so be it. I have to wonder, really, if these three men had Isaiah 43, 1 and 2 in their heads when they said this. Let's read it again. Fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. This is strong faith of the saving power of the Lord, even to the point of looking at those flames that you are about to go into and still not shirking one single bit. These guys could have compromised. They could have said to themselves, well, okay, let's go ahead and bow in body, but we're not bowing in our heart. We're not praying to that God. We're praying to our own. We just look like we're bowing. And they could have went on with their day. Nothing else would have been happened. But they didn't. Now let's pause for a moment and think about this in our own lives. It's highly, highly, highly unlikely that we're going to ever face getting thrown into a blast furnace. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's probably not going to happen, not for our faith. But there are other situations where we may be asked to compromise our faith in much more seemingly harmless ways. Now, there have been people, and we know some, we know some of them, who have lost their jobs because they stuck by their faith. They were passed over for promotion because they wouldn't compromise on their faith. Do you realize there have been more martyrs in the 20th century than there have been in the previous centuries combined? Because they stood for their faith even when they were facing death eye to eye. Now in this country, we have relative freedom to practice our faith, but the thing is, more and more people tend to look at religion as a matter of opinion instead of a matter of fact. And there is a tendency now to give and take more and more in matters of faith. There's a large number of faithful Christians, and I will freely admit my grandmother was one of them, who will not take a stand for fear of rocking a boat. Oh, we don't want to offend anyone. After all, Jesus was love, and we don't want to cause confusion or or make it take offense. And and they totally ignore the fact, even though they may know it very well, that the apostles were described as men who turned the world upside down. And Jesus himself threw money changers and merchants out of the temple twice. And he wasn't kind about it. Jesus knew that the gospel was going to offend people. If we look at Matthew 24, 9 through 10, let me read it for you. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. That doesn't sound good. No, it's not. But there's a promise. The promise we find in Revelation 3, 10 and 11. 
Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. There is, by the way, another insidious form of compromise, one that seems almost so innocent that we don't think of it as such. Interfaith worship services. You may have heard a few of these. There are places that really brag about how they have these interfaith worship services. And we're not talking about um, interdenominational between like Presbyterians and Methodists and so forth. No, no, we're talking about interfaith between different religions. Christians, Mormons, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and so forth, coming together to celebrate worship. Now, here's a question I'd like to ask you. If an imam, a Jewish or a Islamic holy man, comes up and gives an invocation to Allah, should I pray with him, praying to God while he's praying to Allah? That's a hard question. Isn't this the same thing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to face? The choice to stand firm or to pray in appearance but not in heart? Just because it's politically correct to be tolerant of all religions, where is that written in the Bible? After all, as believers, that is our source. Well, let's look. John 16, or excuse me, John, John 14.6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pretty clear. 2 Corinthians 6.14 tells us, Do not be equally unyoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? Either we stand upon these promises and this standard that God has given us, or we treat them as just words. And if we treat them as just words, let us keep in mind Luke 12, 8 through 9. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This is a fearful situation. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is who promised is faithful. And one more time Revelation 3.11 Behold I am coming quickly hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. I don't see anything about interfaith here. Actually I do see something. Revelation 3, 15 and 16. A warning to the church of Laodicea. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus is saying that if you are so wishy-washy that you cannot take a stand for him, then you will make him sick to his stomach. That is not a place for us to be. Think about it. If those three Jews had bowed before that idol, their witness for God would have been destroyed before a huge pagan audience. And who knows what would have eventually happened to them. We probably would have never even known about it. Likewise, if we waffle and we don't stand firm in our own faith, our witness before an unsaved world is compromised. The Bible tells us that for his faithfulness to God, Daniel served in the government of the Babylonian and Persian empires for over 60 years. And he never compromised. He always stood firm and oftentimes got in trouble for it. But if we think about it, there was a lot more people that went through the Babylonian training than Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We never hear anything else about those other compromising Jews. Now, does this mean we should not work with these other religious groups at all? Well, when it comes to worship, no. But like, for example, if there's a disaster, there's a lot of faith-based organizations that go out to help the people who are in trouble. By all means, that's our calling is to help people. And it doesn't matter who's next to us doing it. But when it comes to worship, no. Will that give us a reputation to be intolerant? 
I hope so. Very likely. Who are we striving to please? God or man? Jesus gives us that answer. Matthew 10.28 Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. No, we are to please God. And if man doesn't like it, well, we knew it was coming. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, got, they basically made their stand for the Lord. And the results were not pretty. Let's take it up in verse 19 of Daniel 3. Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the fiery furnace. And they went. Apparently someone hurried over and got to the bellows real quickly and stoked up that fire so it was so hot that most of the people who were normal couldn't even get close to it without dying. Now, we also here get the impression the king had been rather fond of these three guys. But now he's going to show them that king didn't play favorites. No, you crossed me, you're going to find what out what happens when someone crosses the great Nebuchadnezzar. Now, strangely enough, here's an interesting side note. If the king's goal was to actually give these three troublemakers an agonizing death, he actually ordered the wrong thing. As was clearly demonstrated by those who were supposed to throw the guys in the furnace, a super hot fire was going to give you an instantaneous and relatively painless death. However, God had a reason for that because God had a point to make. And the king unwittingly obliged. Let's look at verse 24. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Oh, look. He answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. God came down and was taking a walk with his boys. Their faith was rewarded, not only from being saved from death in a 3,000 degree plus fire, but they were rewarded by actually seeing the face of the Son of God, Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. Now you have to wonder, what did the Lord say to these guys while he was in there with them? Well done, good and faithful servants. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Be strong and have a good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Now, when we go through trials, when our faith is tested almost to the breaking point, we can also hear those words of comfort from the Spirit. Now, we may not see the Lord face to face, as did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but we feel his presence. We feel that comfort and that peace that surpasses all understanding. No, it's not a pleasant experience. But we know the Lord has us in his hands, and there we are. And we here also be strong and of good courage. Do not fear or be afraid of them. He will not leave you. Or forsake you. Well, whatever was said in the flames, and I'm willing to bet that the last words Jesus told them was, until we meet again. The whole scene had turned into a mighty testimony before a pagan audience. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. 
And the satraps, administrators, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. Their hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of the fire was not on them. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. That day, that wonderful day, what had begun as a pagan worship service turned into a wonderful worship service for the one true God. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. And remember, everyone was there seeing what happened and everyone heard those words. We don't know how many people were affected by this scene. The Bible doesn't tell us. But imagine what would have happened if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had compromised and went along with the rest of the crowd. What if they had not been there at all? Now, there is no record of where Daniel was all while this was going on. But what if they had joined him and missed out on this event altogether? The Lord placed these three men in this position. And looking back, we now see why. They were in the Lord's will, and they were willing to to stay there without question, no matter what the consequences. Their faith was strong, deeply rooted like a tree planted by a river. They were not going to budge, no matter what could happen. Now, a couple of side notes. Nebuchadnezzar's profession of faith, on the other hand, was just words. Chapter 4 will tell us that he had another dream. And this dream had warned him that if he would not acknowledge that God alone was sovereign and that it's not for mere men to usurp his authority or to claim credit for his works, if Nebuchadnezzar did not repent from this, he was going to lose everything. A year after this warning, in the midst of a boast, God's judgment came and the king spent the next seven years insane, living like a beast. Toward the end, though, God restored his reason, and it took this most humiliating experience for one of the most powerful kings in history to finally make the statement we find in Daniel 4.37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and all who walk in pride he is able to put down. And he's speaking from experience at this point. Now, I'd like to close tonight by sharing a story about being where God wants you to be, in the center of his will, standing firm in probably the most dire of consequences. This story revolves around a businessman from Palos Verdes. His name was Norman Williams. And yes, this is a true story. Norman had given his life to the Lord when he was seven. He was raised by a praying and Bible-believing and Bible-reading mother, and he had faithfully served God all of his life. Now, in January of 1977, Norman's business partner, a gentleman by the name of Ted, asked him to join him on a Mediterranean cruise in March. Now, originally, Ted's wife was going with him, but suddenly felt compelled to stay at home to take care of their children, one of which had major health issues. And not wanting to waste the opportunity for a vacation, Norman accepted. So they left LAX on Saturday, March 26, 1977, on Pan American Flight 1336, a 747 bound for Las Palmas on the Canary Islands, a small group of Spanish-controlled islands off the coast of North Africa. 
Now, because of some apparent error on the part of the airline, Norman and Ted were not seated side by side. And they were not happy about this. They wanted to discuss business. They were friends. They were wanted to enjoy each other's company. But they were essentially in two separate seats, actually one in front of the other. They tried to have it change, but the airline basically said, sorry, full flight, no can do. Well... They got over it and were looking forward to this wonderful vacation since it was the first either one had had in a long time. Now, as they approached, they approached the Canary Islands, they were told that a bomb had got off at the Las Palmas airport and that there was a threat of a second bomb, so the airport had been closed. So they were forced to divert to a smaller airport on the nearby island of Tenerife. As the Canary Islands was an important stopover point for many transatlantic flights, there was already a large number of aircraft at Tenerife, including six other 747s. And this was an airport that was not designed to handle that many jumbo jets. One of those 747s was KLM Flight 4805, which was coming in from Amsterdam with a bunch of vacationers destined for Las Palmas. As a result, the taxiways on the airport were completely blocked by parked aircraft, so any incoming and outgoing aircraft had to use the runway in order to move from point A to point B, a very dangerous situation. Now, while Norman's flight waited to continue its trip to Las Palmas, which, by the way, was just a 50-mile flight, very short, the fog rolled into the Tenerife airport, bringing visibility down to near zero. At long last, on the evening of Sunday, March 27th, Flight 1736 was cleared to prepare for takeoff. So the 747 started moving down the runway toward the end in order to line up to take off and land at Las Palmas. However, as they were moving down the runway, some oncoming landing lights appeared in the fog. It was flight. It was the KLM 747 having mistakenly thought that they were cleared for takeoff, and they were bearing down on this other plane at nearly 200 miles per hour. Norman said he felt a sudden jerk as the plane suddenly went to the left, and then there was a sensation of a drop as if the wheels had gone into a ditch or something. This was the effort of the pilot to try to get the plane out of harm's way. Unfortunately, it was too late. The KLM pilot suddenly saw the 747 from Pan Am appear in the fog, tried to lift off. The nose managed to, to, to miss the aircraft, but the landing gear ripped right through the Pan Am jet, eight rows ahead of where Norman was sitting at 200 miles per hour. The front half of that 747 fell forward away from the rest of the wreckage. Stuff was flying everywhere. The rear half of the airplane was suddenly drenched with jet fuel from the KLM-747. That plane propelled another 500 feet, landed, and slid another 300 feet when it burst into flames. Norman found himself instantly on his feet, has no recollection of taking off his seatbelt, and he was surrounded by a wall of flames. He had no clue what had happened. He thought maybe the plane had been bombed. All he knew is he was in a situation where he had to get out. He looked around. He couldn't find Ted. And it was very surrealistic of flames. And people were screaming. There was explosions, black smoke, people dead or dying. And to his shock and utter horror, those people who were burning to death around him were not screaming to God for help. They were cursing the Lord with their last breath. And he couldn't understand it. He felt that he had been given a glimpse of what hell was going to be like in those moments. And the first words out of his lips were, Jesus! Jesus! He repeated it over and over, and immediately he felt the presence of God with him. He assumed he was going to die. Everyone else around him had. And he knew if he lived, God was with him. If he died, God was with him. He acted to escape. He felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit telling him to go this way or don't go that way. Scripture after Scripture started flooding through his mind. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the God who will deliver you. 
Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. As Norman made his way through those flames on that doomed aircraft, he cried aloud over and over again, Father, I stand on your word. I stand upon your word. A large object flew at him, big enough that would, if he hit him just right, it would pin him down. And through the power of Christ, he deflected it. But in the process, he looked up, which he had not before, and he saw a hole in the ceiling. It's about ten feet up. He doesn't remember how he got up there. He called it his instant rapture. First he was down here. Then suddenly he found himself on top of this aircraft. Of course, they're rounded. He slid onto the wing, got down on the wing. The engines were still running. The co-pilot had been unable to shut them off at the time of the crash. They were running on full steam. There was a full load of fuel in the wings. Explosions were still taking place behind him. He was now on the wing of a 747. If you know anything about 747s, that's not a tiny drop. Nevertheless, the prompting of the Spirit made him jump 35 feet to the ground. He was injured. He had many cuts of all sorts of flying debris, and he had shattered most of the bones in his left foot from his fall. He staggered on another 50 feet when the wreckage he had just exited exploded. He had been one of the last to get out. But at that moment, he realized that God had kept his word. Despite his cuts, despite his injury, he had no burns. His hair had not been singed, and his clothes had not been scorched. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. There were 240 people on board the KLM flight, and there were no survivors. Of the 355 souls aboard Pan Am flights, the Pan Am flight, only 61 survived, and most of those had been in that front section of the plane that fell away from the rest. All of those that were in the seats around Norman, not only were they killed, they had been burned beyond recognition. He was the only person in that section to survive. This had been, by the way, the worst commercial aircraft disaster in history before 9-11. Norman realized that there was a reason why he was there and that the Lord had rewarded his faithfulness. Looking back, he realized God had placed him on that flight so that his business partner's children would not have been left completely as orphans. God had placed them on that flight to minister to those passengers around him during their last hours on this earth, showing the love of Jesus through his actions. God had placed him in the exact right spot so that he would survive the initial impact. God had placed him on that flight so that when he, so that he could relate his testimony of the power of Christ to take care of his own and bring other unsaved people to Christ by that testimony. Standing firm under fire. Whether it be before an oriental despot with delusions of godhood or in situations in the workplace or in school or with family where compromise just seems so easy and solve the problem, or in all the worst crises that we are likely to face, we must stand firm in our faith and in the promises of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't do it in their own power. Norman Williams didn't do it in his own power. Neither do we have to do it in our own power because God promised us that he would never leave us. When things are at their worst, he is still there for us, willing to help us, fighting for us, loving us until that final day when he calls us home. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Brothers and sisters, stand firm under fire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons that we learned from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How that you have us in your hand and that 
no matter what happens, we are yours. Father, it's so hard these days to be firm and strong. Something has come into the church in many places where it seems like that defending your faith or standing for what you believe in just isn't fashionable. But Father, that's not what you had in mind for your children. You did not create us as cowards. You created us to be strong in you, not in our own power. And so tonight, Father, as we're praying here, I pray for those who maybe are worried about not being strong enough for you. Maybe they have compromised. Perhaps they're facing a situation where compromise would be the easiest way out. Maybe they are honestly considerate of others and don't want to rock the boat. Father, put your hand upon these people. Fill them with your spirit. Fill them with your power. Fill them with your strength and your might. Fill them most of all with their courage and that knowledge that you will never leave them nor forsake them no matter what. And maybe you're here tonight and you maybe only have a cl- barely a clue of what I'm talking about. Who is this Jesus? Who is this person that you're, you're, you're talking about that if you trust in Him, you'll have that peace? But whoever that is, I want to know. I want that peace. I've been under fire. If you're one of those and you want to be under the Lord's wings to to have Him take care of you, raise your hand now. Or perhaps you've been with Him for years, but again, you're kind of falling away a little bit. You haven't, you're not staying firm like you were at one time. You're compromising. Again, if if you're one of those, go ahead and raise your hands. Bless you, sir. Bless you, sir. And in the back. Father, put your hand upon these men. Put your hand upon them now. Give them that that strength. We cannot do it in our own power. We cannot be the men you want us to be by ourselves. That's why you gave us the Spirit. Pour your Spirit upon these believers and give them that strength and that peace that surpasses all understanding. And Father, be with us tonight. Be with our pastor as he's traveling. Bring him back safely to us. Be with all of us tonight as we go home and give us traveling mercies and bring us back safely on Sunday. And we praise you again, Father. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name.